Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to 2020. Uh, No vision puns here on this show. I'm really looking forward to this year, though. There's just already so many awesome episodes that uh, I've begun working on or that are pretty much ready to go. Can't wait for you to hear them. Today's topic. This is an issue that seems to kind of drift in and out of Christian news cycles every few years. Do Muslims, Jews, and Christians all worship the same God. Oftentimes it's just phrased, do Muslims and Christians, but it's an open question because some very conservative Christians don't even believe that Jews worship the same God, that Yahweh, as understood by Jews, minus Jesus's divinity, is not the real triune God of Christianity. We're going to hear plenty about that today. This question, I think, has pretty big implications, real world implications, especially for questions of religious liberty. Most Christian-focused nonprofits or legal funds that work toward religious liberty work only toward Christian religious liberty, with a few notable and important exceptions. But if Christians were to be convinced that Allah is actually the God they worship, then they might push harder for true religious freedom across the board. And of course, there's so much fear around Islam because of modern-day terrorism, but that's a topic that we're actually going to save because there is an entire upcoming episode devoted to that. So look out for that in a few weeks. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Schwartz from the Claremont School of Theology. 
and he's going to walk us through four possible ways of answering this main question. After that, we will turn to an in-depth conversation about Christian pluralism, the idea that God deals with people of other faiths in much the same way that God deals with Christians. And Andrew will also give us something that so many listeners have specifically asked for, a straightforward definition of process theology. All right, let's get into it. Andrew, thank you so much for being here, man. I'm on the email list for the Center for Process Studies or something like that. And I got this email that said that you uh, and John Cobb, a famous uh, process theologian, open relational theologian, had co-authored a chapter on one of those new Zondervan Four Views books. So they have all these books, as you know, listeners might not know, Inerrancy, you know, Canaanite genocide, uh, you know, this is all these views, right? So any baptism, anything you could think of, they have these books. And this one is called, Do Christians, Jews, and Muslims Worship the Same God? You and Cobb wrote the most liberal, the most thoroughly pluralistic of the four chapters, which doesn't surprise <laughs> me, and which uh, pretty clearly w- would end up being my favorite. But anyway, I so I reached out because you and I are acquainted through going to AAR and kind of just being involved in some of these open and relational theology discussions and seminars. It's kind of my social group at, at the American Academy of Religion conference. Uh, and I've gotten to know you a little bit and really like you. And, and you're at Claremont, now in Salem, Oregon. Um, what am I missing? Is that a good enough setup? That's a great setup. Yeah. Okay, cool. So what we're going to do, I'm going to give a little uh, table of contents here. We're going to, I'm going to have you go through each of the four views, ending with your own and Cobb's view. The book also contains a couple interesting essays about Christian-Muslim relations, and I have two just notes from that that would be interesting to talk about. And then I've got about six additional questions about this robust religious pluralism, uh, as you call it, sort of some consequences for that around other religions besides the Abrahamic religions, you know, incarnation, atonement, salvation. And then at the end, the last question is about process theology. And since a lot of times people ask can this be clarified, please? I don't do a very good job of explaining it, so I, I tend not to. Uh, but you are right in the middle of that, uh, in the thick of that movement. And so I'm going to ask you to explain process theology in the basics and, and how it relates to this idea of religious pluralism. Everything sounds good? Cool. Let's do this. Okay, cool. All right. So, Andrew, let's start with the first view that's presented in the book. This is the most conservative view. Uh, this is None worship the same God. Jerry Walls uh, wrote this bit, and he says, yeah, Christians, Jews, and Muslims are all worshiping either different gods, or I guess he would say Jews and Muslims are worshiping a false god, and Christians are worshiping the true God. I, I, right? Is that what he would say? That I More or less, that seems to be what he's suggesting. I, I hadn't thought about this before, but Jerry Walls, I could have associated his name with the idea that he's sort of creating these theological walls that okay. separate us us versus them, right? Inside versus outside, true versus false. That is uh, way too rhetorically convenient. That's insane. Yeah. But uh, no, I mean, you know, this is the fun thing about doing a collaborative project like this is that all of the authors, you know, they're great people that that we all respect one another. At least I respect them and they respect Cobb. I don't know how I fit into this equation, but, uh, you know, but then, you know, we, but we can disagree. Um, and, you know, we were approached by the editors um, and the publisher to represent these four different perspectives and that we did that to the best of our ability. And, 
and Walls took that sort of classic exclusivist kind of perspective um, that's saying, no, uh, Christians, Muslims, and Jews do not worship the same God. Um, they're all worshiping different gods in the sense that they all have different conceptions of God, not in the sense of sort of a polytheism where there are multiple gods to worship. So as, as you indicated, Walls would, would have said, well, there's actually only one true God, that's the Christian God, so that Jews and, and Muslims are actually oriented towards something that's not ultimately real in the nature of things. He His, his sort of argument it's basically the, the idea that um, there are core features of the Christian view of God, um, including a Trinitarian uh, perspective and specific views about Jesus in the incarnation and resurrection that separate Christianity from Islam and Judaism to the extent that if you reject the divinity of Jesus, then you're really just rejecting the God of Christianity, which is the one true God. Yeah, I mean, the Trinity seems to be the salient detail there, right? So God is one. We agree with Jews and Muslims, but God is three in one, and and you can't understand God without understanding Jesus of Nazareth, who was the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. Specifically, you probably could maybe understand the Holy Spirit if you're in one of the – like if you're being charitable, insofar as the Holy Spirit is sort of God on earth interacting in time with people, maybe is one way of sort of conceiving of the Spirit. But Jesus, as the incarnation, is specific to Christianity – and so Walls would say, hey, if that's out, then we're just not talking about the same God. Right. So, I mean, of course, this is a very common stance that a lot of evangelical Christians have. A lot of the readers, I would expect, of, of this volume would probably take that stance. And there's there's something nice about the sort of logical simplicity of it. One of the concerns that, that I would have as a, as a pluralist would be, sort of uh, the concern that this view has with it sort of uh, an undue arrogance. It just seems, it seems strange to be able to sort of, why, why should we believe that, that my perspective is the one true perspective and that those who disagree with me are just completely false? Yeah, you might think that like in a world of 7 billion people and depending on how you tally it, 5 to 10 major religious traditions that exist today, you need a pretty strong bed of evidence to claim that lo and behold, the one you were born into has it right. And you're confident enough about that, that you could say, no, they're not even praying to the real God. Right. It's pretty convenient to say, if you're going to hold the sort of absolutist view, right? The, right. the view that, you know, one view is sort of absolutely true and everything that dis- you know is different is, is absolutely wrong. Um, or at least, wrong in substantial ways. It's convenient when you're the one that holds the sort of true perspective. And it's natural, right? It's natural for us to want to say that the, the, the position that we hold, the things that we believe passionately, we believe them to be true. Like, why would we right. intentionally hold beliefs that we think are false? But this is a, a separate step. So, of course, I believe step. that Christianity is the fullest description of God. Otherwise, I couldn't be a Christian. I mean, it's it's logically impossible to be a Christian and not f- and think actually Islam's closer. <laughs> right. You can't right. Then why not be, be a Muslim. Mu- exactly. Be right. a Muslim. So so that's fine. That's one thing. It's it's an additional step to say. And I'm so confident about that, that I believe you guys are not even praying to my God. Right. But there's another problem with this view. I think that's uh, even more sort of fatal. And that's that Jesus sure seemed to think that he was communicating with the Jewish God. And so we'd have to say something very 
convoluted about how, well, what Jesus showed us about that God is so distinct that even though Jesus himself was praying to Yahweh and, and made no indication that he wasn't, right, that somehow, you know what I mean, that gets really hard to make that case. Right. Do, do Christians want to say, we worship a different God than Jesus worshiped? Or talked to, or talked about, or what, taught about, right, whatever. Right, yeah. to, or anything, right. It, that's, that a, seems, that's a bad, that seems like a bad spot to be put in. Yeah, I think so. Uh, <laughs> just argumentatively, <laughs> theologically, that's that's got a slew of problems. Yeah, um, what's the reason? I mean, why would we even refer to Jesus? Uh, you know, why would we call ourselves Christians if we were really going to identify us ourselves as sort of oriented toward a different God than the one that Jesus was was referencing? And then, what do you do with passages like, you know, I don't, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. You know, if anybody teaches, you know, the small, the littlest one of these to like disobey the law, you know, obviously we have to figure out ways. That's a complex passage. It's in Matthew, I think, right? It's it's written to a really Jewish Christian audience. There, there's interesting questions there, but it doesn't seem like a realistic way out of that is to say, no, no, he meant <laughs> it's a totally different God. That's, right. that's and, tough. And of course, this is actually um, the second position Gerald McDermott takes where because of this sort of this strong scriptural connection between the, uh, the Old and New Testament, um, the Christian scriptures and the Jewish scriptures, uh, between what Jesus was saying and, and how Jesus was oriented, that he, he basically argues that um, Christians and Jews worship the same God, but Muslims don't. They're on the outside. And he points to things like the idea that Christ, you know, Christianity wasn't intended, right? The Christian message, right? We're thinking Paul and Jesus and stuff. I mean, they weren't setting out to create a new religion. There's these shared scriptures across Christianity and Judaism. And even more than that, he he goes on to say that Christian beliefs about Jesus are actually grounded in and compatible with Jewish scriptures. So the the idea that Jerry Walls takes of, well, if you reject the incarnation and, and the resurrection of Jesus, then you're rejecting the true God that represented in Christianity. McDermott even opens it up to say, well, the Jewish tradition allows space for those convictions. Yeah, that's, but the Quran, yeah. the Quran's different. Right. right, it doesn't overlap the same way. Islam's out. So before we go to that second view, just two more quick things about uh, the Walls view that that none of worship the same God. You're also going to, yeah, Walls view. Exclusive <laughs> Walls. walls. <laughs> <laughs> There's an issue with prophecy in the Old Testament, right? Like most mm-hmm. Christians and definitely the New Testament authors want to say there's a stream of thought. Even liberal Christians will say, uh, you know, the newest New Testament authors, they take some liberties with some of these prophecies in applying them to Jesus. Doesn't appear to be the way that the original prophesier thought it maybe should be taken. But there's certainly a stream of thought in the prophets about there is an anointed one. There is somebody coming. And certainly to the extent that at the very least we can say in the historical record, a bunch of Jews at in Jesus' time thought there was a Messiah. Some of them obviously thought that was Jesus. They went on to become Christians. But other false messiahs were slain by the Romans in like AD 70, for instance. Simeon, I think, is his name. So – There's a messianic expectation in Judaism by the time that Jesus comes around. And for Walls, that's weird. Now we're saying, so we've got Judaism. It expects a Messiah. We think that the Jewish Messiah is Jesus and Jews are not worshiping the same God. That's a, that's kind of a crazy argument to make. 
Yeah, and and of course, this is where our, our theological nerd lenses say, well, there's a difference between eisegesis and exegesis. And there's a fundamental problems with reading in and introducing our own presuppositions and agendas and biases into these these Old Testament scriptures uh, to reinterpret Jewish scriptures with Christian lenses in, in a way is a sort of a colonizing of Judaism. Well, I agree with you, but the kind of conservative Christians that that at the lay level would believe what Walls is saying don't tend to see that problem. They tend to go, yeah, the Old Testament's full of references to Jesus. He's the Messiah promised in Judaism. You know what I'm saying? Like on the sure. on the far left, we might push back against that, and that's why I'm saying liberal scholars will push back against some of that reinterpretation of those prophecies. But conservative scholars don't, and this is a conservative argument. Right. Right. And then the last thing about this view, I, you know, the way that views are used in the real world is not always a good argument for them being false. Uh, but there is a kind of a proof in the pudding thing. And Jesus says, you know, a lot about good trees and bad trees and good fruit and bad fruit. Most of the history of anti-Semitism seems connected to this view. And I'm not saying that Jerry Walls is an anti-Semite, uh, of course, and I'm sure he's not. But in point of fact, this is kind of the way that Christians, Christians in the in the loose sense over time have justified killing and terrorizing and second class citizenshipping of Jews. Right. So it's it seems to me that, how do I put this? It's not necessary to think that Jews and Christians worship the same God in order to be respectful of, right. of Jews and Christians. You can, right. you can be respectful across uh, and, and still disagree, but it certainly seems like it's less likely that you would be anti-Semitic if you believed that these guys worship the same God as you do. So... I think there, there's certainly corollaries between exclusive perspectives that are also tied to notions of superiority, right? So it's not just that this is my view um, and that's your view and uh, it becomes, okay, my view is true, your view is false. Because my view is true, my view is better than your view, which actually means my religion is better than yours. And now you sort of have this position of superiority and anybody who disagrees with you is inferior by virtue of them disagreeing with you. And it, that's a short step after that to sort of anti-Semitism or, or Islamophobia or other forms of right. exclusion, which can lead to violence. So again, it's not necessarily the case that to be a religious exclusivist entails that you're going to be burning crosses or something like that. Right. But uh, it's, it certainly seems to me to be a logical progression of exclusion and superiority toward treating people you think as inferior in oppressive ways. And this really is just kind of dancing around the nub of this question, which is just, we can almost not say this enough, that there's a difference between I believe X and therefore I, of course, I don't believe what, not X. You know, I can't believe two contrary things at the same time. The difference between that and this additional move of exclusivity and confidence and superiority of saying, and I have so much confidence about my belief that then I will, you know, then this these things follow. I do have a quick question. Does does he like have to hold this view in order to accept this for the book proposal? Like, do they only ask people who actually hold the views or are people willing to like take the view for the sake of having the four views represented? I assume the latter because I was willing to do that, doing my best to defend the, the sort of yes position from a pluralist stance as a as a scholarly endeavor. 
Yeah. So I assume that others felt the same flexibility. I I, I don't know personally where where Jerry Wall stands yeah. on this. Okay. Um, well, so let's move on to the second one. So this is a uh, Gerald McDermott, as you mentioned. His view is that Jews and Christians worship the same God. Uh, a lot of the stuff we've talked about. There's the through line of prophecy. There's the through line of Jesus himself as a Jew, practicing Jew. But that's distinct from the God of Islam. So what's that argument? I think it's it's twofold, actually, for McDermott. One piece is the issue of scripture and seeing that there are overlaps between Jewish and Christian scriptures, so much so that we can say that, that they worship the same God. But the Quran, it's completely separate. It's not a shared authoritative text between Jews and Christians um, and Muslims. It's, it's just a Muslim text. The other piece, actually, is are the the characteristics and qualities of God in the Quran in contrast to those presented in the Bible. And McDermott argues that the God in the found in the Bible is presented as a loving father, but that's not true of the Quran. And that so because they're presented differently um, with these sort of different qualities and characteristics, um, we should conclude that they're actually different gods being referenced here. And again, like Walls, not to suggest a polytheism where there are multiple gods to reference, but to say that Jews and Christians are, wor- are, are oriented toward the, a true existing real God and that, that Muslims are, are not. Yeah, so this argument is, I think, pretty simple enough to understand, right? You've got the fact that uh, in the Christian tradition, Old Testament and New Testament are both considered holy scripture. They're both in the Bible. Even if you want to quibble about the Apocrypha or whatever, the Quran is not in that. And the Hadith, you know, the sayings of the prophet are not. So we've just got different scriptures, so we can't appeal to church tradition or anything like that. And then uh, there's an apparent discrepancy in the way God is described. Now, that's an interesting one, and I'd like to talk a little bit more with you about that and get your take, because my understanding is that the Bible presents differing views of God's character, and that uh, if you plotted it on a graph over time based on you know when the books were likely written— you, you see a kind of a progression, uh, but there's also stuff that's black and white in the New Testament that most Christians today do not take literally. Um, there's plenty of stuff in the Old Testament that we don't think describes what God is like, even in fairly conservative Christian circles. So we have a pretty like a pretty complex and kind of well-trod way of thinking through these tough passages, right? Like, There are whole conferences about this for more conservative Christians of like how to still believe in a loving God with all this stuff. Are we being a little dismissive of maybe the the depth of interpretive detail within the Islamic tradition? Maybe they are doing the same thing and we're just not aware of it. Well, I think, too, there's different cultures, different contexts, different uh, time periods, different languages. I mean, there's all these sorts of things that that make it more complicated and trying to figure out what exactly, how do Muslims actually describe Allah? And of course, there's there's this beautiful 99 names of God. I actually, when I was um, studying abroad in Egypt, came home with one of these in this beautiful Arabic script. And it was, you know, sort of this big sort of uh, goal, you know, poster with uh, these names. And I mean, th- when you start thinking about Okay, what are the ways in which these 99 different ways of talking about Allah, you get things like compassionate, merciful, uh, giver of peace, holy, creator. And, I mean, these, these are not things that sound fundamentally different than what you hear in Judaism and Christianity, even if sort of 
loving father isn't the particular way that it's being presented, I feel like the kinds of characteristics that we would use. So if you if you had to go on and describe, well, what are the characteristics of a loving father? Those characteristics, I think, are actually represented in the Islamic portrayal of of the divine. Yeah, something that we, we're going to say for the next one is we're not papering over differences, or we don't want to anyway. It's not you and I don't want to say there are no differences between the way that Christians and Muslims and Jews consider, think about God, name God. There are differences. But it strikes me that um, maybe what's going on here is like a Christian version of the Richard Dawkins approach. So Dawkins and other new atheists will go to the Old Testament mostly. They will pull out these really disgusting passages that if you read them by themselves, uh, paint a really unflattering picture of God. And then they say, hey, this is in your text. You must believe this if you're a Christian. Therefore, Christians believe awful things about God. Are we just doing that same thing to the Quran? I mean, if if Muslims, when you actually ask them what God's like, they say things more like God is a loving creator. God is a bringer of peace. And you go, but look at these passages. It's like, well, that's what that's what the new atheists do to us. And we object. Right. The God of Christianity and the God of Judaism is the killer of the firstborn. I mean, that's right. Not, yeah. not how you're being, you know. Yeah, is that is that the same as a loving father? Uh, commanded um, genocide against the Canaanites, right? I mean, so he's a genocidal god, right? Right, and and that's that's not paying any attention to all the various ways that people have interpreted, uh, you know, those passages over time from the very beginning. You know, you've got Augustine saying it's a meta, it's a big metaphor, right? So now I don't think it's a big metaphor, but that's three in the three hundreds A.D. and Dawkins is telling me. I've got to believe it literally happened and that's what God is like. Am I making the same move if I say this about the Quran? Right. Yeah, that, that's, that's one of my fears of this approach. It's the different authors contributing to this volume um, are very philosophically oriented, really sort of philosophical theologians. And one of the themes that actually kind of carried through multiple chapters within this volume was discussion of, of sense and reference. So discussion of what there is actual in, in actuality, sort of what reality is, and then our sort of perception or experience of reality, what we know about reality. So the uh, reference is to the real thing. That's the that's the referent, right? Mm-hmm. And then sense is like our sense of the thing that we are referring to with our language about God or whatever. Exactly. Okay. And, and in addition to that, there were discussions about differences between conceptuality and actuality. And this is actually something that I think comes into play here with McDermott's view, um, as well as with Walls. And that's, is it necessarily the case that we're, we are referring to different gods simply because we are talking differently about those gods? Um, I mean, I have brothers, right? And let's imagine that uh, my, my brothers and I are both describing our father in very different ways. Does that mean that we have different fathers or that we're just using different ways of describing that father uh, with different experiences that we've had with our father because we're different and our relationship with him is different? So I think it's Im- yeah. it's important to not just jump to the conclusion that because Muslims, Christians and Jews or, or Christians and Jews on the one hand and Muslims on the other, just because they describe God in different ways, that doesn't necessarily entail that we're actually talking about you know, are oriented toward different kinds of, of ultimate reality, one true and one false. Yeah. Or like, you know, say someone, there, there've been these stories in the news 
of people kind of abusing fertility clinics, right? And like fathering a hundred children or whatever. And they're scattered all around the world and they have very different experiences. And, and, and when they hear the news that, oh, this is actually your father, uh, they're going to have really different reactions. They're going to use different words to describe him, but it's still the same dad, right? Like the fact that that is their biological dad doesn't change. They just, they could have any number of reactions to it and, and beliefs about that guy. They would have been told stories by their moms. Maybe that would have been false because the mom believed it was true, right? Didn't understand, like they didn't, the mom didn't know it was this guy. So there's all these kinds of thought experiments you can do, right? Right. And I, and that's, it's actually something that I think that comes out a little bit in Francis uh, Beckwith's chapter, as well as what Cobb and I present, uh, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. So this kind of gets at, I'd like to talk about this for a second. So, cause it's going to set us up for the third one. There's a really common metaphor that people know, which is the blind man and the elephant. So maybe world religions are like uh, blind men around an elephant. Well, I think it's like a trunk or I think it's like these feet or I think it's this big, rough, broad side. And that's kind of the Beckwith view. And we're and you're going to have some critiques of that. And then there's also the the image that Keith Ward uses, who's been on the podcast before and, and who you're acquainted with. And that's the idea of. There's a difference between what something is and what something looks like to us, but not just what it looks like to us, what it ought to look like to us, given where we are. So he uses the moon as an example. So the moon is actually a sphere, but from where I'm looking at the moon, it's a it's a disc or it's a scimitar, right, depending on the time of the month. And it ought to look like that to me. It's not I'm not deceived by seeing it as a disc or a scimitar. So basically what Ward is saying is that it's not, we're not deceived. We just, from where we're standing, it ought to look that way. And an interesting question that's going to really come up with these next two is how much does our culture, our time and place of our birth, the language we are uh, enculturated into using just basically values of different civilizations, how much does that affect the way we really ought to see the real God from where we're standing, basically. That's something that I kind of want to have in people's minds. So any, any thoughts on that before we move on to, to Beckwith? Well, that's, that is fundamentally John Hicks' position, everything that you're just describing. And he's sort of one of the lead voices of, of religious pluralism. And his actually, his position is, is very similar to Beckwith's position this idea of so there's there's multiple things you mentioned the blind man and the elephant right so the idea behind here is not simply that our understanding of ultimate reality is limited hence being blind and that we all have a limited grasp a leg or an ear or a tail or something of that ultimate reality we all have a piece of the puzzle that's part of it but another piece is the idea that that god this divine ultimate is fundamentally ambiguous and mysterious in some way, which allows for multiple interpretations, uh, which allows for these encounters to be interpreted in diverse ways, such that we can conclude that, for example, Muslims, Christians, and Jews may actually have different experiences of God, and then therefore may describe God differently, even though they're all oriented toward the same mysterious, sort of always a little bit outside our, our, our grasp reality. Now, one of the critiques of this perspective um, 
in and I don't know if you want to jump into this because it, yeah, it is let's, sort of let's just describe view. it. So this is the third view. It's it's that all worship the same God. It, it is a pluralism view. It's not a robust pluralism as, as you and Cobb would call yours. It is that we're referring to the same God and we're just having sort of different images. So so this is sort of the Keith Ward view then as I understand it. Is that right? With the moon, the moon example. Yeah, and I think this analogy of, of moons, and actually it's funny, we, we mentioned that in one of our responses, I think, to McDermott. And it's, for us, actually, it goes back to this um, sort of Buddhist example of, of not confusing the finger for the moon, right? So uh, you take your finger and you point to the moon and you talk about it, and you don't want to confuse the, you know, that which you're actually talking about with what you're saying. Um, and this is a recognition that, language is is largely symbolic and it's always pointing beyond itself so so beckwith's position insofar as he's reflecting john hicks position is that underneath the diversity of the different world's religions and in this case specifically underneath the diversity among and the differences between christianity judaism and islam there's a fundamental unity that we're all oriented toward the same god so if that's the case then how do we make sense of why there's differences and it ends up being that the differences are at the level of experience, the level of interpretation, the level of knowing, but that reality itself, the moon itself, it's the same moon. The way that we experience it, the way that we describe it and talk about it may differ. So actually Beckwith has, he appeals to a, a sense of an ontological oneness of God, the, the fundamental idea that there's only one creator, one sustainer, one absolute source of all things that exist. So while Muslims, Jews, and Christians might disagree about the finer points of the divine nature, they're all oriented toward the same divine ultimate. So I thought going into this talk that I was going to agree with you and be in the fourth position. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm working this out now. I might be in this third position here. So let, let me just, let's talk through this a little bit. Yeah. Um, so the idea is that there is a fundamental unity of God. There is a God which produces all this variety of religious experience, but it's not multiple gods that produce it. We're monotheists. We don't believe it could be that there's multiple gods producing it. There's one God producing it. And we're just not, none of us have a full bead on what that God is like. I, I'm trying to figure out how I could believe anything else. I don't, I don't want to say it's not just the one moon that everyone's looking. I don't want to say there are multiple moons. I, I mean, I, I understand it's going to be interesting to hear your criticism of this view, but on the face of it, this seems like uh, maybe I don't want to say I know a ton about that God, but I don't know that I want to say anything other than it's just one God doing that's the referent, the referent or reference sort of that's that we have a sense of that we're seeing in our own ways. Yeah. And actually, I, Cobb and I both really like many of the features of Beckwith's argument and, and in, in our sort of approach included his more or less a very similar ontological approach because it just it, it's it's what I love about it is that if you begin you know, I mean this is a question about Christians Muslims and Jews and I'll, I'll talk in a moment about how we need to complicate that identity a little bit but if you begin with the fundamental beliefs of Muslims Christians and Jews they all agree that there's only one God so let's just begin with that starting place there's only one God well, now, who else would they be worshiping? Who else is there to worship, right? Uh, you know, thinking like taxi driver, you talking to me? 
You talking to me? You know, who else would you be talking to? There's the, only one God. It's only one guy to talk to. It's God. Yeah. So, so it doesn't matter if Christians are praying or Muslims are praying. Those prayers are all oriented toward God, um, the one and only. Yeah, and we can right? assume that we've got a, some chunk of it wrong. We don't know how much of it we got wrong. We know everyone's got some amount of it wrong. But who else are they praying to? Right. So I think there, there's something sort of clever about that that approach, because not only are you beginning with uh, shared assumptions across the three traditions, it's almost just sort of common sense, like, well, if everybody's worshiping God, and there's only one God to worship, then it must be the same God. So there's even a little more support for this. There's even a kind of a monotheism that people say they find in uh, certain strands of Hinduism. So there's even like some ways of being more Eastern oriented, you know, or even like Taoism, like the way, sort of the way that things are naturally going, it's the way they kind of want to go. It's not exactly the word that they would use. But that way could still be something like a manifestation of God's will, God's preferences, to use more Western language. We talked, uh, we've talked about this before, you and I, the, the many, the many roads, one mountain, or many... I was just thinking of that, yeah. So what you don't want to say is, well, I happen to be at the top of the mountain, and I am very fortunate to be able to see that all these roads lead to the same place. That that seems bad because now we're actually saying something more than all the religions are each saying. We're synthesizing them in a way uh, that we believe is true, and that that's a kind of a supremacy. I don't like that. Right. But I don't know that this third view is necessarily guilty of that. It depends on – how much granularity you think you have when you're describing God. So the it's all leading up the same mountain it, uh, believes it has quite a bit of granularity. And I know what the mountain's like and I can see the different paths. Uh, there's at least a version of that that we don't – we probably want to stay away from. But just someone saying, look, there sure seem to be all these paths. And as far as I understand it, there can only be one mountain because – Maybe you're in an area where there's only one mountain. I don't know. You know, like th- th- you'd have to have an argument for like why there's only one God. You you may need an argument for non-polytheism or something like that. But if you've satisfied that, then I don't know that I don't know that that is sort of Im- cultural or religious imperialism. Just saying, I just don't think there could be more than one God. So it just must be God, right? Yeah, and actually, I'm not sure. If you need an argument for sort of monotheism or, or an argument against polytheism, if the audience that you're working with are Christians, Muslims, and Jews, because they have that starting place already. So that makes sense. I guess I'm, I'm it already – gives us a leg up. But, but the Christian, Muslims, and Jews thing is really just a way to talk about all religions. I mean that's what I'm really most interested in. I don't just want a solution for the Abrahamic religions. I want to know how I should think about a Hindu in India. You know? Well, now – so that actually would – I think that the the, the Schwartz-Cobb approach might be helpful to okay. your end. We may take you to the dark side, no, that's away good. from this Beckwith perspective. But as you were saying, this idea of, of the blind man and the elephant, or the many paths up one mountain approach, one of the main critiques of this view of pluralism is that in order to even articulate that there, the situation is that we're all blind, grasping at the many sides of this complex ultimate reality, that somebody has to be in a privileged position. There has to be some sighted person out there who can look down and say, all y'all blind people are touching the elephant and you're just touching different parts. So don't be exclusive of one another. Reality is not exclusively like 
A, B, or C. It's sort of you're all you're all limited in some perspective. So the criticism then becomes that the pluralist is presenting themselves in a privileged position above the other religions, had this sort of meta position, as opposed to being a position alongside the other religions, um, presenting a, a perspective about ultimate reality. And and this is sort of the pushback that you get from uh, those who reject this form of pluralism. Okay, I understand that. Here's a possible way out. So earlier we were talking with the first two approaches. There's a difference between saying, I believe Christianity is true. I believe that the Christian story most accurately describes God. And then going further and saying, I'm so confident in that view that I will now claim that everyone else is wrong uh, and that they don't even worship the same God. Might there be a similar move here where I say, look, as a monotheist, it seems likely to me that there's just one, the same God that people in all religions are interacting with. But I don't know that well enough to sort of be imperialistic about it. I just think that because I have other reasons for being monotheistic. Namely, I'm in the Christian culture and I experience God that way or something like that. Is there sort of a soft pedal version of this third view that doesn't commit that? Or do you think it, it just it happens no matter what? You know, one soft approach could just be to sort of hold convictions loosely to have a greater sense of humility about your your religious stances. So there's a logical question at play, right? And I think part of that is, is pluralism just another form of exclusivism? Okay. Uh, is, you know, insofar, let's you know think about like, does tolerance require intolerance of intolerance, right? This sort of paradox of, you know, does, does, does pluralism as a position that sort of is above and uh, above and about religions and their relationships um, to one another and to the ultimate realities, does that position itself require an exclusion of non-pluralistic standpoints? Uh, and so, so I guess the, the question then becomes, is there a way to have a pluralist position that is not exclusive of non-pluralist positions? <laughs> Get your head around that, everybody. Okay, well, that we'll we'll take a break here. We'll come back <laughs> and we're going to get the fourth view, which is robust religious pluralism, yours and John Cobb's view, as well as uh, all the other stuff I mentioned at the beginning. So at this point in the middle of the episode, most weeks I play you clips from the most recent patron only exclusive episode. This week I'm not. I'm going to talk about the Facebook group a little. I will just say the most recent one is really interesting. It's with Hunter Threadgill. He is a Christian guy and an emotion researcher. So we get pretty deep into what he understands about what emotions are and what the implications he thinks are for theology and daily lived faith. But for now, let's talk about the Facebook group, which is for patrons only as well. It has become such a resource, and I thought today I would just list the four most recent threads on there, I'm just pulling it up, and there are people chatting about this, commenting, offering resources. Uh, it's just really become a cool community. So these are the most recent um, topics or, or threads in the Facebook group. Discussion about a Desiring God article, that's a conservative, reformed Christian website that advocates that we require obedience from our children. So there's conversations in there about you know, punishment, abuse, emotional abuse, whatever. Resources for talking through atonement theory options with a conservative parent. The split in the United Methodist Church over LGBT issues and climate change. And 
just to what extent the Australian fires are or are not actually related to climate change. Again, these are just the four most recent posts. And then also, uh, I did a poll and asked which of three episodes that were kind of ready to go should come out first, should come out today. And the group voted for this one. So that's also a little fringe benefit in the Facebook group as I often ask for feedback. So if you want to become a patron, it starts at five bucks a month and there are scholarships. You can go to patreon.com slash dancoke or you have permissionpod.com and click become a patron. If you do need one of those scholarships, email me at youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com and we can talk about getting you hooked up with that. All right, let's move on here to part two. Back at it with robust pluralism, and then we'll get into process theology with uh, Andrew. We haven't yet gotten to the fourth and final view, your view, John Cobb's view, robust religious pluralism. So explain your view and, and how it's different from that referring to the same God pluralist view. Yeah, so... So when I was approached about contributing this chapter, you know, and taking the the pluralist stance, yes, Muslims, Jews, and Christians worship the same God, a pluralist view, there was an interest in in representing this sort of process-inspired view of deep pluralism. And it's an alternative to what is sometimes referred to, uh, especially by, by scholars like David Ray Griffin and John Cobb, as identist pluralism that uh, is represented in the kind of, of John Hicks view and referred to as identist because it's that sort of identity, this identicalness of underneath the diversity, sort of this penultimate diversity across different traditions, that there is a sort of underlying unity, a singular ultimate, uh, this one, one mountain kind of approach. Um, for which all religions are oriented toward whether or not they realize it. Now, before Cobb and I sort of jumped into our arguments, you know, sort of to answer yes to this sort of overarching questions about Christians, Muslims, and Jews, we thought it was really important to complicate the question and the task at hand first, because for us, it wasn't enough to sort of just say simply, yes, of course, uh, they all worship the same God. And we we complicated the the problem uh, the, or the, the question in two key ways. So one was raising the question of what's actually meant by Christians, Muslims, and Jews. And for us, there was this acknowledgement that across these three traditions, there's a great deal of diversity, a great deal of diversity in, in practices, a great deal of diversity in, in what is said and believed about the divine, and so much diversity that actually we argue that at times the differences are greater within Christianity, with underneath that umbrella of people who identify as Christian, than there are between particular Christians and particular Muslims, for example. Yeah, this is something that really shocks people who are raised in a certain kind of Christianity, you know, namely, in my experience, evangelical conservative Protestantism. When you start doing kind of world religion stuff or even just some history and geography stuff that like actually there aren't sort of these binary categories of religious traditions, like there's tons of syncretism like, all the time. There are, you know, these missionaries move into this place where these beliefs had existed before. And now this kind of Tibetan Buddhism is a little bit more like this thing that came before. And it's less like Japanese Buddhism, which is a little bit more like had this Confucian element, you know, whatever the thing is. Right. That's actually what it's always like everywhere. 
And it's even like that in America. You're going to find more guns and God Christians in the South and in rural areas than you are in cities. We might want to think that our traditions are these hermetically sealed groups with their creeds and their formulations uh, and their membership requirements that, that stay unchanged. It's just not, unfortunately, if that's what you want, it's not true. There's no such thing as that. And it's probably more of actually a continuum between Christians, Jews, and Muslims than actually three separate categories. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I think that, for example, the Christian Methodist God of John Cobb and the Yahweh of Rabbi Bradley Artson are much more similar, both coming from a process approach, than the God of Cobb and the God of uh, John Calvin, for example, I think that's uh, within true. the Christian yeah. tradition. Similarly, the God of, let's say, uh, St. Augustine within Christianity is probably more similar to the the God of, of uh, Muslim thinkers like Al-Ghazali than they are between like Cobb and Augustine. Yeah, because um, Augustine and Al-Ghazali are both working with Aristotle, basically. They're working with Greek philosophy. In a classical theistic notion with particular takes on divine omnipotence, divine foreknowledge, all those sorts of, of great things. So um, the point being is that to simply say there is some group, Christians, Muslims, and Jews, that we can identify as static identities and say whether or not they agree or disagree, whether or not they refer to the one and the same God or to different gods, is already problematic because there is no single Christianity, no single Judaism, no single Islam, not only in the diversity across those denominations, traditions, or sects within each religion, but even the way that they unfold throughout history, right? These are not static traditions. They're, they're always evolving and changing and, and developing. So there's a sense in which uh, it would be better to identify a particular thinker um, and even then, a particular statement by a particular thinker. Yeah. Because, you know, the the early uh, Martin Luther and the late Martin Luther don't necessarily look the same. Of course, I know personally my views on God have evolved and changed over a, a time in year, different years of study. So we shouldn't expect that that it's so easy to say whether or not Christians, Muslims, and Jews worship the same God, since it's not so easy to identify who we mean by Muslims, Christians, and Jews, and yeah. at which in which at which time are we talking about that particular conception of God? But correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I, I this point is very well taken. I 100% agree. It still seems like it also applies to the previous view that that uh, there could still just be one referent. That's the real God, and all these varieties of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, whatever, they're all going to be shifting and sort of changing over time. But they're still just referring to the one God. That that God's not changing just because we all change all the time, right? So, so so thus far, we haven't necessarily differentiated you guys from the third view, correct? Right, yeah. Okay. Nope, right now, all we're doing is just saying, even to answer that question, do, do Christians, Muslims, and Jews worship the same God, is introduced with a certain set of assumptions that need to be unpacked a little bit. Love it, yep. There is a strategy, especially that, that I've learned from Cobb, a strategy for how to do that, and that's uh, through dialogue. And this, this book is a dialogue of sorts, but it's it's not as pointed as saying, do Francis Beckwith and Andrew Schwartz worship the same God? It's five different authors uh, presenting four different perspectives on whether Muslims, Christians, Christians, and Jews worship the same God. And this is actually the second piece that uh, we added to problematize our, our task at hand, and that's the problem of language, or what Alfred North Whitehead calls the fallacy of the perfect dictionary. 
um, as well as the the problem of what's meant by by sameness, right? So there's for us there's an an inherent ambiguity in the terms, uh, not only what we mean by Christian, Muslim, Muslim, and Jew, but also uh, what do we mean by worship same in God? Basically, every word in, in the sort of fundamental question that this book is about needs to be unpacked. So you know, I like the example of atheism and theism, and and again, this comes to to why dialogue so important. On the surface, it's easy for us to say, well, atheism is atheism. It's not theism. So atheism and theism are not compatible. In fact, they're opposites. And linguistically, they're presented that way. And um, of course, Richard Dawkins, I'm sure, would love to agree. Yeah, of course they are. Theists say uh, there's God, and atheists say there's no God, and they're opposites. Yeah. But then you then you have to ask, well, what exactly are are the atheists rejecting when they reject a notion of God? And what exactly are the theists affirming when they affirm a notion of God? And, and through dialogue, through unpacking, through actually getting a little more detail about what's being rejected and what's being affirmed, it's possible to realize that the very notion of God that a lot of atheists reject, um, some old white man with a beard in the sky that is um, giving people cancer to teach them lessons, is the same kind of God that a lot of Christians, Muslims, and Jews also reject. Right. So it's... Yeah. So there, so so there is a complexity in language here, such that even things like theism and atheism may be compatible. And if those can be compatible, well, how much more so might we say that the the God of of Muslims, Christians, and Jews might might in fact also be compatible? Yeah, the only reason I think to think that atheism and theism are incompatible is if you think, and and you know, there's reason to believe this that God really cares. It really matters to God if you identify as an atheist or not. But if you believe that that's probably not the thing that God cares about, that what God cares about is something more complex, it's are you willing to, you know, live as if the Christian story is true or something like that, despite, uh, you know, difficulties and counter evidence. Well, many atheists do that quite well. Uh, And they just, what they're rejecting is some idea of God that they've been taught probably by prominent Christian thinkers that they reject and that I probably reject as well. I've, I've, I've long thought about having a show or a segment on this show called I Don't Believe in That God where I bring on an atheist and, and I just try and figure <laughs> right. out if I believe in the God they don't believe in and in what parts. And my right. intuition is that mostly I wouldn't believe in that God anyway. And so then it'd be interesting to see what we're actually disagreeing about. And I'm sure there'd still be disagreements, but it'd be interesting to see if the atheism, theism is actually the disagreement. Or if the disagreement is more about what a particular a, conception of theism, yeah, or right. what a God would have to be like, you know, perhaps they might think, well, I'm an atheist because I think a God would need to be like this and I don't believe in that. But I might think that God doesn't have to be that way. And so I can believe in God, you know, so it's interesting. What if the difference yeah. between a theist and atheist is just what is entailed in the notion of God? But then how do we know which of us is right? How do I know that? His, you know, views of the entailment of God are not accurate and my, mine are, you know, that's, right. I can never know that for sure. And I think, I mean, the point here isn't to say that, well, not only do Christians, Muslims, and Jews worship the same God, but we also worship the same God as atheist. That's yeah, not, that's the, not the point. Yeah. I think for me, what the point is, is how you, how would you even go about figuring out whether an atheist rejects the same God that a theist accepts? And I think the the same strategy needs to be presented to Christians, Muslims, and Jews. Boom. How can a Christian say what a Muslim and a Jew believes about God? 
How do we know? There's, you have there's to ask a lot of questions, basically. First. You have to ask a lot yeah. of questions. Right. You have, but even when you ask questions, there's always a sort of leap between what's being said, what's being written, and how I'm interpreting yep. it. Because of the ambiguity of language. Love because it. the ambiguity of language, the differences of minds. So, so then there's also this piece of the problem of sameness. So to even ask what do we mean by if, whether we worship the same God. And, you know, I like the, this example of the, this, this philosophical, this ancient Greek example of the ship of Theseus, right? So like you have like a ship that leaves a port and then going through this long journey um, before it arrives at the shores of its destination changes all the parts of the ship. It was a long journey. The materials, new, you know, we need a new deck, new sails. Yeah, Things were breaking. We had to plank fix by it. plank, sail by sail, rivet by rivet. Right. Such that when it arrives on its new shores, it actually is made up of different stuff than the first one, uh, the ship that left. Right. Which, by the way, is true of our physical bodies. Our Correct. atoms regenerate every seven to ten years. We are not the same. We aren't even the same atoms than we were fifteen years ago. Exactly. So. Including what our it, brains and our neural pathways and all the stuff that makes up our kind of personality in the physical sense. It's really interesting. Yeah. And we, we actually mentioned that as well in our, in our chapter. And it's the point here, again, it's not necessarily to, to argue that sort of God is, is changing plank by plank, um, although a process view of God does allow for sort of a, an expanding and growing God insofar as right. each moment that the world is, is sort of being taken in by God. Um, God is sort of growing. Um, the size of God in- increases. But the point for us is that what does it actually mean to say same God? Um, what is sameness? What does it entail? In that there's there's something about identity that involves both continuity and change, both similarities and differences. And that sameness seems to be a category that incorporates both. So that I am somehow the same person today as I was, you know, 20 years ago. But I don't look the same. I didn't have a beard 20 years ago. Um, I'm, you know, taller than I was. Well, maybe not. How old am I now? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I <laughs> same height. So, the, so I guess the point being is that just because there are differences, whether it's differences in material, differences in description um, and appearance, doesn't mean that we're now talking about different people or different ships. So just because there are differences across ways that Christians, Muslims, and Jews might describe God whether within their traditions or between their traditions, doesn't necessarily mean we're talking about different gods. Yeah, that ship of Theseus has just like unending applications. And it, and it, for me, it never really, um, I never really land on anything with it. It's more just like a really good way to kind of get into thinking about something complex. Like, for instance, I, I'm still just kind of stuck on this idea. Um, we talked about it a little bit in a recent episode on Christian physicalism or naturalism or materialism. That like, you know, even my memories, memories from 15 years ago exist in some physical sense in my brain. But even whatever those neurons are accessing such that I can remember something, those neurons are different, are made of different physical cells. You know, like that is just crazy. That, so there's some continuity. Obviously, I remember things from 15 years ago. I don't cease to remember just because all my atoms have turned over. I don't. So there's some continuity. But anyway, I'm, I'm rabbit trailing now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, so the so we those are the kinds of things that we introduced in the beginning of our chapter just yeah. to acknowledge that the task at hand is actually a little more complicated than just sure. simply saying 
the Bible and the Quran disagree or d- describe God in different ways. Therefore, we're talking about different gods. The whole way in which we understand Christians, Muslims, and Jews, the use, the way that language works, and what we mean by same and what we're talking about as God, that th- this is very complicated. That was our point. There is one really interesting, I think, interesting point to make, which is that Islam tries to get around some of this by having the Quran be verbally inspired, dictated by, from Allah to Muhammad. So none of this uh, oral tradition nonsense that we have in Judaism and Christianity. And then it's only really understood in Arabic. So no translation issues either. Uh, the problem is, of course, Arabic changes because every language cha- changes over time. And people's relationship to certain Arabic words, just like English words, also changes. Right. So it's yeah. you kind of you have to become an expert in sixth century Arabic, which you can only do by approximation from the 21st right. century. Right. So there, it, it solves some of that problem where it tries to, but ultimately it can't even solve that issue, can it? I, I don't think so, at least. I think from, from my perspective, words can be dictated, but meaning can't. Um, right. Meaning right. always requires some element of interpretation um, and translation such that we are taking the message that's being presented to us, the words that are being presented to us, and formulating them in a way that, that makes sense. So so this that, and back to that, that fallacy of the perfect dictionary, it's, it's basically this idea that if there were a perfect dictionary, there would be some unambiguous set of terms on which we can build understanding and meaning. And the, fa- the reason we say that's a fallacy is because there are no such unambiguous terms. All language has a sort of in- inherent ambiguity to it. Yep. So all language is approximate and symbolic. And given that situation, we do the best we can. We make generalizations and we acknowledge that we're making generalizations based on these limitations. Okay, so let's get into the meat here. Those and that's are... what we did, right. We okay. acknowledged, here's the limits, now what? Let's do the best we Great. can to actually say, yes, Muslims, Christians, and Jews worship the same God. And we had uh, sort of a three-pronged approach, uh, followed by a discussion of deep versus identist pluralism, and then a sort of pragmatic section about the benefits of saying yes. So our, our threefold approach was, first, a historical argument. And this is very simple. All three traditions worship the God of Abraham. They have the same origins. There's, they, they share the same history. So, of course, they're talking about the same God. You know, Father Abraham had many sons. Right. And many sons had Father Abraham. <laughs> I am one of them, and so are you. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, in, in I, so, to me, that, that argument— you, you forgot the last line. So, let's all praise the evangelical Protestant Christian Lord. <laughs> right arm, left arm. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so that's the historical argument. That that's pretty straightforward. So what's the what's the second arm? The second piece is the divine character argument, um, as Cobb and I called it. And this is basically the idea that God is described in actually in very similar ways across all three traditions. Not to say that God is described in identical ways, because again, we want to say that differences are there and differences are important, but that there are sort of basic ways that God is described. God is described as one as, you know, the most knowledgeable, as relational, as um, loving and merciful, as creator, as mysterious. Giver um, of good that, gifts, right? Any, everything good right. comes from God, yeah. So there, it yeah. seems that there are more 
qualities and characteristics that are shared across yeah. the three traditions in describing God, then they are, there are differences. That's and then what, if you take both of those perspectives together, you say, well, not only do we share the same origins, but we also are using some similar ways of describing God together. It seems to suggest maybe that there's a good chance we're talking about the same thing. Again, couched in this sort of recognition of the limitations of language and the difficulties of, of you know, identity. Yeah. And then the third... The third piece is actually the, basically what, what Beckwith was arguing, and that's um, this ontological argument. So all three traditions affirm that there's only one God. So, of course, we all worship the same God. Who else would it be? And then individually, each of these sort of has its own limits. But we think that if you take all of them together, it actually strengthens one another in a way that it makes it reasonable for us to think that Muslims, Jews, and Christians worship the same God. And our goal wasn't to sort of provide an a definitive answer that says, well, definitely they do. This is, it's indisputable. It, it was just to say, it's reasonable to conclude that they worship the same God because they share the history, they share dis- ways of talking about God. And of course, they all say there is only one God. So who else would they be worshiping? Okay, great. So now what I'm most interested in is what's the difference between your view and Beckwith's view, the, uh, the, the one that I'm for the moment maybe arguing for in a tentative kind of a way. Yeah. So Identist pluralism, right? This Beckwith view, this uh, John Hick view is really more of a a many paths of one mountain kind of view. The deep pluralism view, uh, this differential pluralism is another way it's described by John Cobb and David Griffin, is inspired by process theology. And the idea is more that there are many paths up many mountains. Um, You know what? Let, Let me move the process question up. Let's do this now. Because this will help us really understand this difference. So one of the things I wanted to ask you today is to define process theology as, a clo- as opposed to classic theism. So let, let's have you do that, and then, and then we'll apply it. Sure. So, of course, process theology is a theology inspired by uh, process philosophy or process metaphysics, process worldview. So the fundamentals of, of this process worldview are, one, that um, everything is in process— Go figure, right? So the world is in flux. Reality is not fundamentally constituted by static substances that endure unchanged through time. But actually, most fundamentally, reality is a series of events, of moments, of drops of experience. Whitehead talks about it as sort of the most obvious insight that, that, that men and women have is that all things flow. So, so that's, that's one piece of the process view. To that piece, um, something I just learned in grad school in my history of psychology class is uh, something that the philosopher uh, and briefly psychologist William James uh, brought, to the, brought to people's attention, which is the idea of stream of consciousness. Hmm. Not, not in the sense of uh, I'm just going to write and see what comes out stream of consciousness, but uh, you, you can never step in the same river twice stream of consciousness, right? So exactly. you, have, you have an experience today. You have the same experience one year from now. It's actually not the same experience because you've changed. And so your interaction with whatever that is, say you sang the same song in church or you made the, the same phone call to happy birthday to your mom or whatever, you've actually changed. So it isn't the same thing. Even if you try and repeat it as much as you can, nothing is ever totally the same. And that's why you can't step in the same river. You've changed the river by being there and the river has changed you by getting your feet wet. Uh, and you now have one more experience of stepping into a river, which adds to your previous ones and, you know, on and on right. and on. This seems to me undeniably true, but it could still be true that God is not like this, right? So 
it might be the case that our lives are like this, but God's not like this. God is unchanging and we experience the changing world. So that would be maybe the classic theist rejoinder to what you just said, right? Mm -hmm. And then that person would stop short of being a process theologian. Sure. So I think most people are are willing to go as far to say, well, yeah, our our experience of the world is one of flux, of flow, of change, of process, right? Like we experience moments from succession. I mean, if you've ever done leg days uh, in a workout, you realize the very next day um, there's some continuity between you from yesterday and the you the morning that you can't stand up. Um, yeah. Right. Even though you're in a different you, um, you're it's a you that's connected to a past. And that uh, that's the another fundamental piece of this process. Relational worldview is actually relations. Um, so that everything is interconnected, interdependent, that interrelated is sort of not just a happenstance, right, of we happen to be related, but it's actually uh, fundamental to reality itself. Reality entails relations. And that's that includes relations not only to one another, but also to the past, a past that we always inherit. That's interesting. And what a process theologian wants to say is that's also true of God, right? So God is necessarily inherently relational because all reality is inherently relational. Right. And then the another a third piece would be um, that experience is fundamental to reality, that instead of describing the world in terms of um, substances or in terms of sort of mechanisms. Right. There was a uh, big bang and there were these chemicals and then th- that made this reaction. And then now we have particles and carbon and all of that. That does not right. tell the whole story on a process view. Right. That to get deeper than that is to understand life, to understand uh, more of an organic or organ organismic perspective and to recognize that our experience includes uh, both physical and mental. It includes emotional. It includes much more. It includes feeling. Right. So feeling is fundamental. What can reality consist of? So there's a whole lot that could be said. But how does this all apply to God? So God is not sort of an exception to these metaphysical principles, but an exemplification of them within the process framework. And the ground of being, and if that's what being is really like, that's what existence and everything is really like, and God is the ground of all of that, then it's not just, well, this is all true of us, but not of God. It's like, no, it's like definite, it's like first true of God and then true of us in, in a logical sense, because God creates the world and sustains the world. And this is what God's like. So how would, how should we best understand God in the context of becoming, the context of flux and flow and process and change, in the context of deep relationality, necessary relatedness, in the context of experience and feeling, and in, in a few features that that come out within a process view of God that are, are different than your classical theistic notions include that the God of process is not omnipotent in the in the sense of God does not possess a unilateral one-sided power, you know, it, it is it is classically thought, right, that in order for God to be perfect, in order for God to be the most powerful, that God has to be able to impact the world without being affected by the world, to influence, but not to be influenced by. So the relationship between God and the world is always one-sided within a, a classical theistic notion. In the process view of a relational God, actually turns it around and says, God is in a give and receive relationship to the world, and that God's power is not one-sided, linear, or unilateral, but relational. It's cooperative. It's persuasive. So there's a redefining of how we understand God's power 
in terms of relationality and interdependence from a process perspective. Just a couple connections I'd like to make for listeners. Probably coming out before this one and not too far is my conversation with John Hott. And so he's talking about sort of the interior story of the universe. And that's really necessary to understanding the whole story of the universe. And then anytime I've talked with Tom Ord, uh, he's basically in this school of thought. And he also talks a lot about necessary conditions of God based on like what God would have to be like. And what we're, it's, you guys aren't, you and he don't necessarily agree on all the particulars, but it's a similar kind of argument structure that people might recognize. Yeah, I'm happy to, to claim Tom's most recent book, God Can't, as a thoroughly processed book. Yeah. Um, even if that label becomes problematic for him. Sorry, Tom. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, the core argument that the way that God works in the world is persuasive and cooperative, and that God's nature as love um, has major implications for how we understand God's relation to suffering and evil in the world. I, th- I think everything that he's he's saying is is thoroughly supported in process theology as well. Before we get to then bringing this back to your the differences between you and the John Hicks style view, the Beckwith view, give me two minutes on practical implications in a Christian life, switching to a process view of God versus a classic theist view. Yeah. So I think one practical implication is freedom. Now, classical theists, most of them, many of them at least, would would certainly like to claim that our actions make a difference and that what we do matters, not only to one another, but also to God. But I'm not convinced that their doctrine of God actually leaves room for that. So, for example, if if God is in control of everything that happens, if everything that happens uh, happens according to God's will— if God has this sort of unilateral power as well as foreknowledge of the future in a way that seems that it, as if the future is predetermined and not open, then I'm not convinced that within that kind of view of God that our actions actually do make a difference and that what we do actually matters. And in a process view, um, our actions make a difference. What we do uh, matters. And it also matters to God because God is in this give and receive relationship to the world. Just like my stepping in the river changes me and changes the river, it changes me more than it changes the river, but it changes the river some. Similarly, my interactions with God change me a bunch. They change God some, probably not as much as it changes me, right? God's got a bit more going on than I've got, but there is, there's an actual one-to-one relationship there between both parties are changed in true relationship. Just like with young children, if you have an infant your actions affect the infant a lot, but the infant also and their choices and their crying or their pooping or whatever does affect you. And then as they get older and as they can become closer to your peer, well, now I could like try and convince my dad of things and change him quite a bit more than I could uh, as an infant. In terms of my my presence changed him by having a child, but my volition and my arguments I make and, you know. I should get a cookie at four years old. It's, I'm not really changing a lot about my dad. But to the extent that I increase in my agency, I actually have more of an effect on my dad. And I would imagine it's it's the same thing in a process view on my interaction with God. Absolutely. That, that this sort of mutual influence is not always equal influence, um, but that it is mutual. It's bi-directional. It goes both ways. And to what degree we influence God and God influences us in any given moment can change. But that yeah. it goes both ways, I think, is, is fundamental. Another key uh, sort of functional piece, right, a practical piece, 
is that not only do our actions make a difference to us, uh, to one another and to God, but that because the way that God operates in the world from a process view is explicitly relational and cooperative, we need to be active in working with God and one another to prevent and to minimize suffering and evil in the world, uh, to work together toward justice and well-being and the common good. So that we, it's not a matter of just sitting back and saying, well, I'm going to sit back and frog. I'm going to fully rely on God. I'm going to pray, you know, close my eyes on the freeway and say, Jesus, take the wheel. You know, like yeah. I actually, we have a responsibility to be co-workers and, and co-creators with God to build a better future. So there's a great responsibility that is sort of being given to humanity to be responsive agents um, in relation with God and one another to make the world a better place. And um, I actually think that's thoroughly Wesleyan um, as well, not just process. Yeah, that one, it's just like a really robust foundation for a kind of approach that multiple streams of Christian thought would agree on. I think so. A more right. active approach. I want to add one more practical implication. This is the one that I have been thinking of the most as I've been kind of toying with all these ideas. The way I could say it colloquially is that a process God is a God of possibilities at every moment. In some sense, all theists believe that in the sense that like at any moment I might respond to God, I might stop not responding to God and God's always there in a kind of a static way, ready for me to respond. That's the, that's what I was raised with. But as I move toward more of a process view, it's like actually the opportunities that God gives are not static. They change as the circumstances change because God is impacted in some way. So I think of in terms of like, okay, um, let's say I cheated on my wife. Uh, and let's not say that. No, no let's get a different example. Oh, go, go ahead. Go no, ahead. it's a good one. Okay. I think it, I mean, it's good for this. I didn't, <laughs> but let's say I had right on an old, my, my old school view, it would be, well, the Bible's black and white on this. Uh, she can divorce me because I have committed infidelity. This is the, this is the exception Jesus gives. Uh, and furthermore, Anybody who then marries me again after I'm divorced is also committing adultery. Uh, there's probably different interpretations of that. Maybe, maybe not. But that's certainly one interpretation. And that's it. So I'm, I'm dead here. I mean, she might choose to stay with me, and that would be really kind of her. But basically, my life's over, whatever. A process view, as I apply it sort of pastorally, is like, hey, that happened. Now we're in a new moment. Uh, what might God be making available to us in this moment? And so this reminds me more of the Esther Perel approach to, to infidelity in her couples counseling. She's a psychologist. She says, look, your first marriage is over. Would you like a new marriage with the same person? You know, like here is the new opportunity. This is the new moment. God never gives up. And this explains a lot of the language around grace in the New Testament and a lot of the way that Jesus interacts with people of ill repute. It's like, dude, the point is not to like get legalistically get all your ducks in a row. It's like at any moment, there are new possibilities to live into the life of God, the character of God, the love of God, to instantiate that in the world. And actually the details might shift. A thing that wouldn't have been toward God for you 10 years ago might be toward God for you now. So it encourages me to be a bit more aware and like consider more opportunities and more options yeah. and like be looking for God in ways that I might have surprised me 10 years ago. So let, let me put it this way. 
what we do makes a difference in the world. Our prayers make a difference in the world. And when we change the world, it changes what's possible for God. Because God works with the world. God works with us in these particular contexts. So whatever God, whatever is, is possible for us and whatever is possible for God changes moment to moment as the world changes. Um, and here's how that works in, in a process sort of metaphysic, right? There's these notions of prehension and concrescence, these big sort of fancy words that process theologians use to confuse everybody. And basically, it just means that in any given moment, from moment to moment, we are in this process of taking in the past, everything that has happened before, and synthesizing it in anticipation of the future into this sort of creative presence in this moment of becoming. And God does the same thing. And so God is taking in the whole history of the world into God's identity in any given moment, anticipating what's going to come next and synthesizing that into God's being as well. And in relation to us, God is, is offering us possibilities. God is, if, so these, from moment to moment, we, we call it a lure or maybe a call, but these possibilities of calling us to the best possible ways of living in the world, the best possible outcomes, the greatest good, um, to more beauty and, and love and justice. I mean, these are the kinds of things that, that God is calling us toward, but it always creating space for us to respond. So it, it really is this, this back and forth, this um, intertwining process is, is often described as a, a panentheistic view um, for this very notion of the sort of entangledness of God and the world. And for me, that, that doesn't actually mean that, um, you know, as sometimes gets accused, process has a wimpy God that can't do anything, so there's no reason to pray or to, to even worship that God. But it ends up being a God that is sort of intertwined with us in a way where it actually matters even more that we pray, that we worship, that we're in touch with this divine, because what we do actually makes a difference, and that goes both ways. Yeah, so let's let's now come back around and differentiate your view from the Beckwith-John Hick view. Now that we have this understanding of process philosophy and process theology, so how does this make these two different kinds of pluralism different from each other? Yeah, so... The one piece I didn't mention, not the one piece, there's a lot I didn't mention, but um, a piece that didn't I didn't mention. You fully explain process theology just now in 12 minutes? Me, I'm sure I couldn't fully explain it, even though I teach it. As within the process framework, God uh, is presented as a supreme being, um, the supreme being, right? The, the sort of this personal divine ultimate. You know, for those who are familiar with discourse within theology and philosophy, there's often a distinction made between the supreme being and the ground of being, right? Um, the ultimate personal being and the sort of formless being itself. Okay, I see where we're going. Okay, maybe some listeners do. Go, keep going. So what process actually does is creates a space to say, well, if we uh, identify God as sort of this personal supreme ultimate, Let's give another name to what we might call the ground of being or being itself or the sort of formless or as opposed to personal ultimate. And so now now you have a, a plurality of ultimates in process. We call it creativity with a capital C. So you have creativity and God, not as competing ultimates, but two different sort of levels of talking about what is ultimate. Um, ultimate in the sense of ground of being, ultimate in the sense of personal supreme being. And actually what, what John Cobb and David Griffin have done is also talk about the cosmos or sort of the totality of finite things as another way of describing what is ultimate in the nature of things. And so here's what's, what's fun is that 
then those three senses of ultimate can be described as referencing three different types of religion, um, cosmic, acosmic, and theistic. So cosmic would be those traditions, let's uh, especially like indigenous traditions, right, that are oriented toward the cosmos as ultimate in the nature of things. Okay. Um, and that, so we can say that indigenous people are truly oriented to something um, that is ultimate. It's something ultimate. It's not the same ultimate thing that Christians are oriented toward. Right. I see. But it is ultimate in the nature of things um, in that uh, those who are theistic, and this is where we get into the Christians, the Muslims, and Jews, would say, well, they're oriented toward the, uh, uh, the sort of the, the personal supreme being, God. Again, not in competition with the the cosmic or the acosmic perspective but they with, might they might think they're in competition with it of course plenty of christians probably most christians in america think that they believe something radically different than native americans believed but what you're what the process view is saying is look there are different ways that we might think of ultimate things even worship and you know and and i'm 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 trying to do this on the fly because this particular explanation is new to me that you're giving me today but basically when we say ultimate it's like the real capital M meaning in the world such that if you ask us on our deathbed, what was the stuff that was most important or what do we wish we had done better or what were the moments where we felt most connected to everything, that kind of stuff. So one way is, yeah, the universe, the natural world. People probably experience this on hikes, right? They are connecting to something ultimate. It's the physical universe and the immensity and they look up at the stars or they worship the stars as in indigenous cultures, Right. Okay. So that is a kind of ultimate. So also is there's a personal being that created and loves and interacts. That's also an ob- obviously an ultimate. And and without having to say that this formless ground of being has features like love and compassion or that the cosmos somehow also loves us, right? We want to say, well, there's there are special features unique to a personal supreme being. Um, so to be ultimate in this personal way has certain advantages, and there's, um, yeah. there are reasons to be oriented toward that ultimate more than perhaps the other ultimates. Well, yeah. For instance, you can't get to a process view on just the cosmological uh, cosmos ultimate because you don't have that relationality. You don't have whatever, right? So it's not that we're saying they're all equally true. If you're a process theologian Christian, you definitely think that a full picture of the world includes a personal deity of some kind. Right. But you're not going to you're going to try not to be colonialist or imperialistic about it. Yeah. So and then, of course, the the, the third piece, what um, the this a cosmic piece would be oriented toward something maybe like Meister Eckhart talks about as Godhead or uh, as ground of being where you get right from Tillich or or even um, within like uh, Buddhist notions of emptiness um, in Sunyata, like that these are are ways of describing something truly ultimate that doesn't have the same kind of personal characteristics that we have with a uh, traditional theism of of a god that is loving, compassionate, merciful. Yeah, a so, lot of a lot of mystical traditions within different religions talk about no god is no thing, god is nothing because anything that we have a concept for is not going to apply to god or ultimate reality or brahman or whatever. And so that's a kind of a it's not the personal God and it's not just the cosmos because the cosmos is a bunch of things. It's something else. It's none of those things, but it is still, it's, it's obviously seen as ultimate. 
So, so in our in our 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 purpose here in describing this this framework for deep pluralism is not to say that Christians or Muslims or Jews have to choose between being oriented toward one of the three, but just to recognize that I mean even within Christianity, there are those who have more mystical orientations and would sort of direct their worship more toward what we would what we've called creativity or yeah. the sort of ground of being, and others who are definitely oriented more toward a supreme being. And that once we recognize these sorts of differentiations, now it frees us up to pluralistically affirm that different traditions can be oriented toward something that's true and real in the nature of things without agreeing. So we call it differential pluralism or deep pluralism, because unlike the John Hick and Beckwith kind of approach, it doesn't require a sort of an ontological unity there doesn't have to be a single ultimate that all are oriented toward. There can actually be this plurality of ultimates, each one that is truly ultimate in the nature of things, but in a different way from one another, such that they are complementary, not contradictory. I mean, okay, but am I? is it semantics for me to just say, yeah, unless <laughs> your description of the mountain is that the three ways up it are cosmos, a cosmos, or personal God. Like, can't you just say that this is just another version of the summit by identifying these three ways? Maybe there are more than three. These are the three we've sort of figured out. I'm just, I'm devil's advocating here. I'm not not sure I see the distinction. That's a good question. So I would actually say that from this process view, that instead of saying there are three paths up one mountain, right, a cosmic, a cosmic and theistic path, we would actually say there are many paths up um, different mountains because once you get to the top, one top is um, described in sort of this ground of being, formless I see, uh, I see. frame. One top of the mountain is described in a personalist, supreme being way, and another is described in this sort of naturalistic, cosmic way. Yeah, getting up one mountain does not mean that you've gotten up the other two mountains or however many other mountains might exist. And importantly is actually that to go up one mountain is not even to attempt to go up either of the other ones. So, and this is okay. something that we we often have to worry about when we do comparative discourse similar to this, this text on Christians, Muslims, and Jews, is that it's easy to, to run into the, the problem of, I guess, sort of a, uh, an, an intellectual chauvinism of sorts, uh, sort of um, an imposing our concepts and our values on another in a way where we don't create enough space for, for people to ask their own questions and to have their own goals. So an example of this, right, would be if I as a Christian say that salvation um, in heaven is the ultimate goal that everybody's oriented toward. So when I talk to my Buddhist uh, friend and they talk about um, sort of where they're headed and their sort of ultimate uh, end, that nirvana is basically just the Buddhist version of heaven, And this would be a mistake to sort of impose my concept of heaven upon a Buddhist notion of nirvana as if they're actually speaking about the same thing in different ways from different platforms. So this many many mountains approach allows that what the Buddhist is seeking to to achieve and to attain, what the Buddhist is oriented toward in the ultimate nature of things, is not even intending to be the same thing that the Christian is oriented toward or not even the same goal that the Christian has. So at the end of the day, you could say that the Buddhist path toward enlightenment is uniquely valid in that it is a special path to a special end, and that the Christian path 
is also uniquely valid because it's a special path to a special end because they're not an, intending to to end up in the same place. Does that make sense? It makes sense. There are 10 different ways we could go with that, but we are out of time. So So at the very end is our section on on the benefits of saying yes. Okay, let's and, let's hear that. And it's basically just, you know what? We're in a a a place where we have a choice. Um, we can't know for certain whether Christians, Muslims, and Jews worship the same God, because we don't even know exactly for certain what we mean by Christians, Muslims, and Jews, let alone God. But given this choice in the midst of our ambiguity, we think that there's some positive reasons for saying yes, that it leads to a greater sense of peace if we think that that the three Abrahamic traditions are oriented toward the same ultimate, that it in, entails a sort of generosity to the other, even in the midst of our differences, um, a sense of humility for holding our own beliefs, not loosely in the sense of we think that our beliefs are not sort of universally valid, but just recognizing that um, our perspective is, is limited and contextualized, that it's a, this approach allows, uh, invites greater sense of dialogue than perhaps some of the earlier, more exclusive perspectives, which say, well, you're oriented to something false, I'm oriented to something true, so there's no reason for us to talk. Uh, but if we think that actually the three traditions are oriented toward one and the same, there's a greater reason for for dialogue, as well as what we call mutual transformation. So in this process of dialogue, the, the parties involved are actually transforming one another, much in the way you described how stepping in a river changes us and the river. So all, all in all, we just thought that the sort of ambiguity inherent in the question posed in this book is an opportunity for choosing generosity over judgment for choosing unity over division and peace over conflict. And that's one of the reasons we felt like this was the the best approach. Well, I mean, I say amen. And at a psychological level, what I recognize to be the main impediment to someone being able to say amen to that is just the worry that people are going to hell. And so we just got to keep people out of hell. All your good intentions, Andrew, are meaningless compared to that. And that really has a kind of a psychological chokehold on a lot of these conversations for a lot of Christians. And increasingly, I just am aware of the role that that doctrine plays and that very natural sort of rational response to that doctrine, which is intense fear. This is the worst possible thing ever. And so all this sounds nice, but it was meaningless by comparison. I mean, that's, that's how some people would respond. And I think for those of us who don't believe that anymore, even we have to sort of fairly, I mean, I do have to pretty regularly remind myself why I don't believe that anymore, because it is such a powerful psychological rejoinder of like, well, yeah, Andrew, all that's great, or you're wrong, and we're going to hell. So, (laughs) you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And so I'd be happy to come back next time and talk about salvation and talk about, um, you know, how I got started in studying religion and philosophy in the first place, because I wanted to commit my sight, myself to something that seemed uh, to be of ultimate concern. Why bother with the things that are are not ultimately meaningful? What more meaningful than an eternal life, right? So, right, exactly. Um, yeah, for me too. That's what that's what's always led me to be interested in this stuff, and then to now be in the process of turning around the motivations for that, but still doing work around religious thought uh, has been fascinating. Well, we didn't get to all the stuff I wanted to get to, especially I wanted to get to some consequences of a a deep religious pluralism, but maybe I'll just have to have you back on and we'll continue the conversation. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Andrew. I'll have a link to this book, of course, in the show notes. And then uh, do you want me to put like your own personal website on there? 
Sure. Okay. I'll do that as well. And uh, man, thank you so much. That was an incredible conversation. That was great. Thank you. Yeah, I had fun. Big thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing this conversation today. He is available for podcast and other audio editing. His email is listed in the show notes. Also in the show notes, as I just said, Andrew's website and the Four Views book that we were talking through. Of course, there's also a link to the Patreon. If you'd like to support the show financially, it starts at five bucks a month. It is not free to make and it takes a lot of time. And, you know, things that are valuable are worth paying for. I support a few shows on Patreon myself at $5 a month as well. Uh, One of them, I guess I can announce it now. I don't know when it's coming out, but sometime in the next few months, I'll be having Kevin and Caroline on from Good Christian Fun. That is uh, one of my favorite comedy podcasts, and I support that one monthly. And they also have exclusive episodes for their patrons. Anyway, patreon.com slash dancoke, or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. And uh, yeah, email me with any questions or stories or whatever. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you guys next week back here. Thank you.